0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. I'm joined today by Hardin Lang, Vice President for Programs and Policy at Refugees International. Hardin is a CSIS alum. Hardin leads experts across the globe in field missions that respond to some of the world's most challenging humanitarian crises. He's a seasoned expert. On U.S. security policy and Afghanistan, having previously worked for U.N. peacekeeping missions, the Center for American Progress, and, yes, as I mentioned earlier, the CSIS International Security Program. In the wake of the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan, Hardin and his organization, Refugees International, have been invaluable advocates for displaced and vulnerable Afghans. Hardin, thanks for making time today. We're really pleased to have you here for this important conversation on humanitarian assistance in Afghanistan and the refugee process. Welcome to the show. Dan, it's great to be here. It's a real pleasure. Great. Well, look, you've worked on Afghanistan and humanitarian crises in a number of your in professional incarnations. Tell me about your work and tell me about how you see the Afghan crisis and what work have you and Refugees International been doing in the
1: wake of the Taliban takeover, those are a lot of questions, so. Jay, okay, my pleasure. I'll take them in order. So when I first went to Afghanistan, uh, so sort of back in 2005, you could still drive the ring road, right, from Kabul down to Kandahar uh, and then sort of spend a lot of time going around the country. And I spent like the first couple of years mostly uh, in Kandahar, sometime up in Mazar-Sharif, and then also in Kabul. So, you know, it's a country that uh, I don't know as well as others, but one that's sort of close to my heart. And after working for the UN in and out of uh, Afghanistan for a couple of years, I also spent some time, as you said, at CSIS. Loved being there. it's an amazing organization. You all are very lucky. Uh, and working on uh, strategic issues related to Afghanistan um, and stabilization and humanitarian issues inside of Afghanistan. And in my current job at Refugees International, which I'm the vice president for policy and programs, been there for almost four years now. um, You know, we've done work off and on Afghanistan for a while, but we really started paying attention uh, recently Once the uh, withdrawal announcement had been made in April of 2021, because we were just looking at the time frame that was involved and kind of wondering, based on other experiences, um, you know, in recent history of very quick uh, troop withdrawals, what that might mean for stability in the country moving forward and the impact on the humanitarian situation. And then in June, we started writing some pieces about, uh, in essence saying, look, be aware that we have a very significant humanitarian or refugee crisis that's probably in the making, in and around. It may not happen immediately, but it's hard not to see how sort of the uh, turbulence or how the withdrawal doesn't set us up for some very difficult years uh, to come in Afghanistan, especially since it's happening in the, without a, a peace accord in place. And we need to start getting ready now for that. Um, you know, And then I think like everybody else, as the months of the summer, were on in July and then moving into early August as major population uh, centers fell to the Taliban, we really started gearing up for, you know, what comes next, right? So we, along with others, both in our personal and our professional capacity, were involved in trying to do some work around the airlift. But really where our focus has been as an organization has been trying to think about how to sort of set the table and the policy agenda, both in the humanitarian, but also on the refugee and displacement front moving forward. And so what that's meant for our work is to sort of break the problem down into a series of different theaters, the first being inside of Afghanistan, and then also in the region, looking at what's happening of movement of populations into Pakistan, into Tajikistan, into Iran, what the potential was in terms of possible displacement moving forward. And I know we'll get into that in more detail later. We're also looking at what would it mean for transit countries where Afghans who have been in refuge for numbers of years, for decades in some of these countries, and who transit through countries like Turkey on their way to Europe, what sort of protections is available to them in Turkey? What sort of protections is available to them in Europe? And based on our previous work in those locations, particularly on Afghans in many of those places, how do we think about uh, devising a policy agenda that will provide the maximum form of protection based on the responsibility that Europeans and others basically owe the Afghans over the amount of time and investment we've made in the country? But Uh, Above all else, it really was a look at what does the United States need to do right? in terms of here are the things that the U.S. can do not only to uh, provide refuge to Afghans, both through uh, the different forms of the programs that we'll talk about moving forward, but also how do we lead in terms of humanitarian leadership in the region, right, amongst the international community, so that after the troops are gone, we're setting up the country to at least minimize the harm. Uh, they could be coming the way of the civilian population. And we just put out a report today, which I'm happy to you know, drop in your chat box that really sort of outlines these four different areas and what our policy recommendations are moving forward. Got it. OK, so how many people do
0: you think are going to end up m- moving in the light of what's happened?
1: Great question. So the uh, UNHCR has put out an estimate saying that on their worst case, they would expect to see up to half a million into the regional countries, most to, in our view, Pakistan and then also Iran uh, before the end of the year. The Pakistanis have said that they could see as many as 70, 700,000 moving by the end of the year. Um, and so we'll see how things go. But our our basic point here is we need to get ready for that. We need to get ready for it now. So the kind of chaos that we saw around the airport uh, operation doesn't sort of envelop the international uh, response to that refugee emergency as it takes place. So if I'm not mistaken, Pakistan
0: has built a wall, Hardin. Now they may have even had the Americans pay for it, if you, if I can put it that way. So they've, they've hardened their border with Pakistan. Now, some of that is for a number of different reasons. You could argue some of it has to do with, I think they'd like to kind of put a marker down physically, if you will, on sort of where we, they think the border ought to be with Afghanistan for historical reasons and sort of other bigger picture issues for them. Some of it is, is just having border security like any other sovereign state wanting to have that. So as you know, Afghanistan surrounded by uh, is a landlocked country with China, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, Iran, and Pakistan around it. But historically, folks who've left Afghanistan either going to Pakistan or Iran for a variety of reasons. But is the Pakistan route, if I can put it that way, is that a kind of a harder conversation, if you will, than say
1: 30 years ago? Without a doubt. I mean, in fact, what we've seen, not just in Pakistan, but in Iran, uh, and also the northern neighbors. Uh, almost every one of those countries have sort of hardened their borders or have indicated publicly that they don't intend to allow refugees through. We had Tajikistan actually early on said they'd be willing to take 100,000 refugees, but then that conversation went dark. In Pakistan, uh, months ago, they had put down a fairly hard line saying they were not going to let refugees in. Then there were a series of informal conversations that took place, you know, with other aid agencies about perhaps planning for some camps that would be along the border, uh, two or three large camps. And the idea there being that the Pakistanis wanted to allow people, they might let people come across. But then they would have to stay close to the border rather than mix in with other populations of long-term Afghan refugees who have been there for decades. Now the bad news is those conversations seem to have stopped, and so right now the Pakistanis, like a, a very small number of people, are getting through um, into Pakistan out of Afghanistan. Some are making it through the southern, uh, what's called Spin Boldak, through Kandahar and the Spin Boldak. Um, uh, that border crossing. But many of those have like special day pass visas that allow them to go back and forth for commerce purposes. So n- none of the traditional sort of pipelines that would allow Afghans to leave or under threat, those don't seem to exist at the moment. And for us, that's just going to be at the top of the US policy agenda. I and mean, the Biden administration really needs to be on top of engaging with the Pakistanis to see what we can do to find a way to create opportunities for Afghans to seek safety outside of their borders. Right. And so in my mind, is it fair to say, Harden, that this
0: is highly simplistic and broad brush and crude. But Pakistan at one point had as many as three million Afghan refugees, Masomenos, you know. Then I think after nine eleven, I think that dropped. Many of those folks went back. I also think there was a specific active policy that the Pakistani government had to say, we would like you to go back to Afghanistan. There was sort of a push, if you will, on that front. So there's been sort of active policies to try and remove, if I can sort of reduce the number of Afghans in Pakistan over the last, I don't know, several years. The other phenomenon is, given Pakistan's implicit or explicit support of the Taliban and sort of not supporting the Ghani government or the Karzai government before that, Is it fair to say that the Pakistanis are not super enthusiastic about having people that may be leaving Afghanistan because they're not necessarily in agreement with the sorts of policies the Taliban are going to carry out, given that the
1: Taliban are sort of the, the folks the Pakistanis support? I think there are a number of reasons why the Pakistanis wouldn't necessarily want more Afghans refugees are travel and stay in their country. I think, obviously, some sort of the level of proximity and contact and support for the Taliban probably has something to do with it. I think also that those areas where Afghans have settled in parts of Pakistan are at times unstable, and there are legitimate security concerns that the Pakistanis have. However, one really gets the sense that the big issue is just another influx of people coming across the border at a time when the Pakistani economy and those communities are just not doing particularly well. So there's a number of like sort of trend lines that are meeting together or they're coming together to really kind of create this sort of resistance by the Pakistani state to this happening but that doesn't mean we don't try you know and i think what we really need to be doing is looking at not just diplomatic pressure but other ways to incentivize the pakistanis cuz look you're absolutely right back in 2016 the pakistanis made some very concerted efforts to in essence refool push people back across the border into afghanistan and you know human rights watch mc international and a bunch of other organizations really sort of called them the task for that so what we really need to be doing now is creating sort of wind wins for the Pakistanis to really abide by like international commitments and, and the rights of refugees. And that might involve things like international compacts, the kind of things we've seen in Jordan or other countries where we're creating through you know concessional finance or the World Bank or the big donors are creating opportunities for concessional financing or grants for not just the needs of Afghan refugees in Pakistan, but also for host communities. So we make it worth Pakistan's while. We'll say, look, if you do this, We
0: might open up the Asian Development Bank or the World Bank's checkbooks. USAID might revisit the kind of, I mean, we had a very large foreign aid program at one point in Pakistan as part of so-called Kerry Luger work, as you'll remember, Hardin. And that was to sort of say, hey, AFPAC. But I think in this case, it'll be something about, hey, Pakistan. You know, we really think it could be really worth your while. And in addition, to helping host communities, maybe we could help you with some of your core challenges in your country if you were to host, you know, a half a million
1: Afghan refugees. 100 percent. And I think, though... just simply getting the donors to come forward and say that isn't going to be enough. This is why you need like we're really pushing quite hard for like a, a U.S. like a special envoy, you know, attached to the White House, who's going to work these sets of issues, who's going to work, you know, the Afghanistan humanitarian and refugee crisis in the region and perhaps more broadly. And their responsibility is going to be kind of, you know, pressing the flesh, doing the kind of things like Dick Holbrook or others would have done. We 100 percent need someone like that, Harden. Is that being thought about in the Biden-Harris administration? So we do know that they moved on um, appointing a refugee coordinator, right? Which I think there's a lot of pressure from you and from our community and from a lot of people saying you really need to get on top of this domestically. And so the good news there is, you know, a former governor of Delaware has been brought in to do that job. Now, for us, we really want to see that same thing happen over either the State Department or uh, potentially um, answering directly to the White House, the president himself. And so I think you really need that kind of political capital behind that endeavor to make it work. And so it's going to be a mix of. Being smart and generous about the kind of policies and the money flows that would incentivize Pakistan to do the right thing here, but coupled with some really significant diplomatic engagement to get that done. Okay. So let's let
0: me turn to Iran. So the other place many people from Afghanistan have moved to are Iran. At one point, I think Iran has many as two million Afghan refugees, one of the most I know this is going to sound very weird to American ears, and I do not like the Iranian regime, so it was really hard for me to kind of process when I first heard this. But Iran, I'm going to try my best to say this, is Iran is one of the most generous countries in the world in terms of hosting refugees.
1: Is that a fair statement, Hardin? They have done, they have some very impressive social service programs and access to social services inside of Iran. There's no question about that. There have been times when they have been less sort of accepting or welcoming or generous of Afghans in particular coming across, and we saw some of that around the COVID-19 pandemic. But they have had the potential historically and they have demonstrated the potential both in terms of their absorptive capacity and their policy to let afghans uh, in and in fact honestly if you look at the afghans who are making their way into europe via turkey many of them are going through iran so that sort of that pipeline is open or those flows are open and existing it is interesting though because if you talk about how do you go about incentivizing iran to open its borders again to another refugee inflow, the question is whether or not the United States is well positioned to do that, given where we are in the negotiations with the Nuclear Court, and that may very well be something that we want to get our European counterparts uh, more involved in.
0: We have a very limited dialogue, to put it mildly, with Iran, and I don't think we, as the United States, are going to be. Com- I'm certainly not comfortable with us all open. You know, could you imagine a scenario where the Europeans offer? I mean, I just have a hard time even thinking about this, but. Do you know, have a sense of how many Iranian, how many Afghans might go to Iran?
1: So some of the estimates there we're looking at by the end of the year would be up to 150,000. Um, and that's something that, and again, that's a worst case scenario according to UNHCR. And I think that's something that the, you know Iran as a country could certainly absorb. Uh, I think the real concern on the part of like European counterparts are going to be if they're pushing Iran and trying to incentivize Iran to open the door and allow that to happen, um, where are those folks going to end up? And, you know, the bad news on that front is what we're hearing from many, you know, there are a number of great statements about responsibility sharing and rights of refugees coming out of the European Union. The problem is when you actually look at the policies, especially at the national level, what's going on, um, it's really, it's hard to characterize it as anything else than sort of, you know, walls going up and borders being hardened. So that's a point, uh, again, the United States is going to have to invest some political capital to, to encourage the Europeans to do the right thing. In your mind, do you see Turkey taking folks? Yeah, so I mean, Turkey is like, you know, one of the main transit points, right? And there are hundreds of thousands of Afghans in Turkey. The bad news there again is that Syrian refugees inside of Turkey enjoy a special status and they have access to special permits. And by and large, they have access to reasonable protection inside of Turkey those same sets of rights and programs are really not open to Afghan refugees, right? So there's almost like they're second-class refugees or uh, forced migrants, if you will, inside of Turkey. And so we have some very specific recommendations about what the Turkish government's gonna need to do on this. But my sense is that the Turkish government is primarily looking at Europe right now and having a conversation about, look, do we go back to 2015, 2016, where there was this agreement between the EU and Turkey about how to deal with Syrian refugees that ended up largely corralling them inside of Turkey, right, limiting access to the EU. And so if I had to hazard a guess, that's probably where that conversation is right now.
0: So what about if I said Kosovo, Albania, where
1: there's some discussion about asking them to take some folks, they're both small countries. Yeah, but most of the people that we're talking about there are folks who have made their way out of the airlift. Right. So a lot of people who are, you know, as you know, like of the, uh, you know, the tens of thousands who made their way out of the, you know, out of Kabul airport, a lot of them ended up on military lily pads, i.e. bases in different parts of the Middle East. Uh, and some in Europe. Others have been taken to countries like Albania, countries like Kosovo. And there may be an opportunity for Afghans who make their way to third countries to actually be, to actually go to Albania or to Kosovo or sort of other countries in Europe, where they would stay while they're being processed for for refugee status in the United, to be resettled into the United States. So that's a possibility. The question is, how does that pipeline Turn on, like how do people make their way there now that the air bridge at Achakya no longer exists? Are we going to see the airports reopen at some point? So you know, the the UN is already flying humanitarian airlifts into and, and humanitarian charters into Mazar al Sharif, into um, the airport in Kabul, uh, and to a lesser extent, as I understand they're getting ready to do it in Kandahar. I don't know if they've actually done it yet. So my sense is, you know, and the the Turks and The Qataris have both made significant investments in trying to get the airport in Kabul turned back on. So I would anticipate that that would happen relatively soon.
0: We're doing this recording on Wednesday, the 8th of September. Would you say two weeks from now, by the 22nd of September? I
1: think that's essential. I mean, if if that doesn't happen, we have a really big problem because turning on a humanitarian like airlift to get aid into the country is going to be like it's a critical part of the plan for trying to deal with what is out of control, food insecurity, with the COVID crisis, with a humanitarian crisis that's beginning to trend towards a disaster, towards a catastrophe. So in all likelihood, my understanding is that that airport in in Kabul is essential uh, as part of that air bridge. So I'd be really surprised if it wasn't operational by then.
0: But not everyone's going to be able to get on an airplane. So what's it? What's the chances that you know? I've heard various things like humanitarian convoy. I don't even know what that means as a concept. But could you talk to me about if you don't get on an airplane, if there's several hundred thousand Afghans that want to leave the country and they can't get to Kabul airport or one of the other two airports, how are they gonna? How are they gonna get out of the country?
1: Well, the moment right where you have the Taliban, the Taliban have committed, or at least their reported commitment has been enshrined in a series of different documents, including a recent Security Council resolution uh, and also a joint statement that close to 100 countries signed that was released, I think, on August 29th that basically committed the Taliban to, to allow Afghans to move freely across borders. So your re- your first issue, particularly as people are moving around on land, is the Taliban stopping them. We see that right now in Mazar-Sharif, right, where there are a series of charter uh, planes that want to take off and take Afghans to, uh, who are at risk to other countries. And they can't leave because the Taliban are stopping it. And so that same sort of thing is going on in a bunch of different places around the country. And so that piece of it, that's about international pressure saying to the Taliban that if, you, if you're if you serious right about trying to seek some form of international legitimacy or get access to some of the like foreign currency reserves or the financing that you desperately need to have any sense of a functioning government, you have to respect these uh, your commitments in this regard. You have to allow Afghans to leave. Right now, the Taliban are saying, you can't leave if you don't have a passport and you don't have uh, a visa. Well, at the moment, very few who even have those are being allowed to leave. So there's got to be a lot of international pressure there. I think the second piece of that is obviously working with countries in the region, so they open the borders on that side, and that's why we put this huge emphasis on trying to negotiate these safe passage arrangements that involves the U.S., the Pakistanis, the Tajikistan, and the Taliban in in Kabul to try to facilitate this. I don't. I think the idea, you know, like these were floated at different times about having sort of defined humanitarian corridors, say from Kabul to the Jalalabad Road over into Pakistan. I'm not sure that's a great idea at this point, right? I think what we're talking about doing is trying to just facilitate safe passage through a number of different routes, right? I mean, I think the concern would be that if you created a single corridor, it would come under threat. Not just potentially from disparate elements of the Taliban who might disagree, but like Islamic State and Khorasan could easily threaten it. So I think what we're looking at is trying to establish a network of passages or pathways out of the country that really require deep political commitment from the Taliban, but also from countries in the region with pressure and incentive, carrots and sticks from the United States and other countries that the Taliban want something from moving forward. How much
0: how much leverage do you think the international community has over the Taliban? I mean, I think as a percentage of the formal economy, foreign aid is a big chunk of the formal economy, bigger than almost any developing country in the world, maybe other than a hand. Maybe I bet there's only five or six countries in the world where aid as a percentage of GDP is any higher. So in terms of a carrot, it's quite big. Like, let's say compared to Guatemala, I think as a, compared to, say, the Guatemala economy, I think all foreign aid, everybody all spigots is less than 1% of the GDP, and I'm guessing it's well north of 20% in, in Afghanistan. So in theory, it could actually be a carrot, if you will. How,
1: how much of an influence, in your mind, do you think it has? It's an open question right now about whether the Taliban are primarily interested in the money or primarily interested in international legitimacy, Right my sense though is they now have people in the ministries they now have ministers right who are are showing up for work uh, and trying to figure out how to make the, the government function. And if they haven't come to grips with this now, they're going to come to grips with it very, very quickly. We know they're super upset about the fact that they don't have access to their foreign currency reserves, you know, which have been frozen in the United States and elsewhere. So my sense is that they they get it and how how badly they need this and how important it's going to be for their economy and their success potentially as a government moving forward. So my sense is that there is leverage. The question is, how do you how do you do that over time, right? Do you create a system where... Okay, if you abide by these elements of of international agreements to allow Afghans, for example, to leave, to allow Afghan women to have some uh, sets of rights under whatever the new government arrangements are, the basic human rights are being protected, we will modulate and release your currency reserves over time. Or we will turn back on the humanitarian relief, which I think will probably happen. But we'll start looking at other forms of things that will be necessary to basically support Afghans through basic services over time, which might not be traditionally humanitarian. But for that to happen, you have to structure that in a way that there's going to be sort of consistent pressure and some oversight over time. So as you think about the United States,
0: there's something called SIVs. What is an SIV what is a P1? What's a P2? These are words that are often thrown around as we talk about this
1: in terms of Afghans wanting to come to the United States. Dan, great question. And it's one of those questions now that these, these terms are now in the public discourse, on the news and the rest of it. SIV was created by, it's a, the Special Immigrant Visa Program was created by Congress in 2009 for Afghan nationals who were threatened for their work um, because they were working for the United States government, most prominently for the US military um, in Afghanistan since 2001. And as of the spring of 2021, I believe uh, 15,600 visas had been issued and approximately 78,000 Afghans. So that's both the primary holders of the visas, but also their immediate family, their family members, had immigrated to the United States on those visas. But that left an estimated 18,000 applicants and roughly 53,000 family members in the midst of processing when the debacle of the airport began. Uh, The other program that's quite important here is a P2 program. That's a Priority 2. It's a special resettlement program under the U.S. refugee program. And it was created, the one that's relevant to Afghanistan, was created by the Biden administration on August 2nd. And it's for Afghans who are uh, not eligible for SIV status, but are affiliated with the U.S. through a series of different uh, mechanisms, but including U.S. government funded programs, media based companies that got some U.S. support or non-governmental organizations that receive some money from the United States. And so you have the special priority to resettlement priority category that in essence allows people to be resettled in the United States. The trick is that technically they've got to make their way to a third country before they, from where they can apply for uh, the refugee status. And processing P2s can take months if not years. So hard. here's my simplistic
0: calculus. There were probably 25,000 Afghans who worked directly with the U.S. military. There were probably 25,000 Afghans who worked with the U.S. global development community. There were probably 25 additional Afghans who worked for the U.S. intelligence community. And there are 25,000 who worked for the other agencies, EPA, Department of Labor, Department of Justice, HHS, CDC, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's about 100,000. Each of those probably has dependence of about five. So we're talking a universe of 500,000 people. So really, the SIV number, and I would argue the SIV conversation is sort of a gateway drug to having a larger conversation about the totality of people we probably have a significant IOU with. Now, SIVs, if I understand it correctly, you can't bring your mother-in-law with you and you can't bring your mom, but you can bring non-married dependents with you below the age of 25, I think is the number. So... You would bring a spouse, you would bring s- significant other, and you would bring some children. So let's just say it's masomenos plus four or five. That's I think what we're
1: talking about. So do you kind of agree with that, Harden? Is that are we kind of talking a hundred thousand times five? So the number that we've been using in terms of is like is pushing. The refugee resettlement number in the United States up to two hundred thousand to uh, for twenty twenty two to begin to facilitate these numbers, but that's all refugees, right? That's not just from Afghanistan. I think a number like that over time, I mean, those are the kind of numbers we're talking about. What you know in in, what occurred in Vietnam, it's totally doable. We as a country can do it. We probably can't do it in a single year. It's probably going to take some time to get it done. But that's the unit. I mean, I, I don't think you're far off in terms of like the estimate of folks who are gonna be at risk because of what they did with us or because they engaged in sort of a journey of shared values with the United States in Afghanistan. Okay, let's assume there's a universe
0: of 500,000 folks. The United States doesn't necessarily have to receive all 500,000 folks, but it strikes me as if we're probably on the hook to make sure these folks get placed in a good place. That could be Iran, that could be Turkey, that could be Kosovo, that could be Albania, that could be Canada, that could be the United Kingdom, that could be the United States. So I know we're throwing a lot of numbers around, but let's say the universe of Afghans that I think we're on the hook for about 500,000. So I'm going to talk about a separate set of numbers, and I think you know, you'll track with this, which is that there's something called the, the so-called refugee cap. And this is sort of one of the doorways in which Afghans can come to the United States. The number, I believe, was 16,500 at the beginning of the Biden-Harris administration. After some internal debate within the Biden-Harris administration, they raised the number to 62,500 for all refugees. Candidate Biden promised to raise the cap in his first year to 125,000. I'm on the record of saying At the very least, we ought to raise it to what president, then candidate Biden promised if he was elected president to 125,000. And therefore that net of 62,500 from 62,500 to 125,000 would go to all Afghans. So I'm not asking whether you agree with that or not, but is that sort of track? Is that kind of, is that, that's kind of directionally what you all are talking about,
1: right? Yeah. And we're pushing the number up to that that refugee cap number up to 200,000. Right. So that's that, that would be the only difference. But like, I think your your approach to the math, right, to putting the equation together is absolutely right. Thank you.
0: OK, so my view is we have major debts and we've got major obligations to a significant part of Afghans who were with us and who trusted us. There's going to be a time for a different conversation about. What just happened? And we're on the hook for it. we got a lot of obligations. What can the American people do? If somebody's listening to this podcast, what are two or three simple things the average American citizen or the average citizen in the world who's listening to this podcast, because this is listened all over the world, what can they do? Is there a website or two they could go to? Could they make a contribution?
1: Is there something else they can be doing? What can they be doing, Harden? Sure. So there are a couple of things, right? I think there are a number of very impressive non-governmental organizations that are doing sort of the work of welcome in the United States uh, and then elsewhere, right? So I think you've got organizations like the International Crisis the International Rescue Committee. You've got uh, like Mercy Corps, a number of NGOs that are doing that work inside of Afghanistan that are providing humanitarian relief inside of Afghanistan that we can support. And I think those donations are critically important. You've got a number of uh, what are called refugee resettlement agencies, right? And these are non-governmental organizations in the United States under the rubric of something called um, RCUSA. And this umbrella group brings together the resettlement agencies that In essence, provide services to people, to refugees when they're resettled in the United States and allow them to sort of become integrated or help them facilitate integration into their host communities in the US, contributing to those organizations, because a lot of them are going to be stepping up and filling gaps as the Afghans who are already in the pipeline, people who are making their way here as a result of the airlift, arrive. I mean, many of the Afghans who are coming into the country are not coming in on formal status. I mean, they have have an SIV application, they have a P2 refugee application being processed, but many of those those things are in process, and so they're gonna be what's called paroled in to the country. When you're paroled in, you do not have the same set of rights to the same set of programs that you would if you were a resettled refugee. And so a lot of these resettlement agencies like LIRS and others, they are going to be the ones who step in to gap fill. And so that's a place where your money can be spent. There's also a really great initiative that's being put together called Welcome US, which is going to sort of bring, it's going to thread together all these organizations and also communities across the country to really come together as like a joint umbrella organization to provide welcome, to the Afghans who are in the pipeline to come to the United States. And so I think you're looking at giving you know money, like stepping up and giving some contributions to those organizations which are doing work in Afghanistan right now where the situation is most dire and they continue to operate. I think you're looking at the resettlement agencies here in the United States. I think honestly, just writing to your congressman or your senator and saying, hey, look, we want to emphasize and underscore our willingness as Americans and sort of bipartisan consensus that this is the right thing to do. By the Afghans who are coming here, not having tolerance for the kind of some of the hateful rhetoric that we see flowing around right now. I mean, I think it's absolutely essential that we come together as a society and a country to provide just the basic sense of welcome to a population of people who are in danger because of their association with us.
0: So, in my view, is if you support the troops, then you need to support the folks that supported the troops. So what are you going to do to support the folks that supported the troops? So you'll see an op-ed that Hugh Hewitt did over the weekend on Afghanistan. I don't know if you saw it. You saw it? Yeah. So I think uh, I had spent an extended period of time with him last week over lunch, kind of making this case. So I was particularly pleased with someone with his platform and following. He has 4 million radio listeners every morning from 6 to 9. I listen to him. and he's a, He and I know each other really well. So we had lunch last week and I had this was about this topic. He then used it to ask people like Kevin McCarthy and other Republican leaders, what about what are our obligations to people that were with us? So I think, you know, I think it's really important that we step up. And um, so look, Harden, thanks for your leadership on this. Uh, We'll we'll maybe we'll come back and, and have you come back on maybe later in the fall to keep tracking this. Uh, but I'm really, um, really grateful that you would take the time. Know you're super busy. Thanks for what you're doing. And, uh, and we'll, we'll get this out shortly uh, to, to our listeners next week.
1: Dan, it's a real pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. I had such a fantastic time being at CSIS. And so anything I can do serve as part of the wider alum and network uh, for the CSIS family, I'm always up for it. Great. Thanks, Harden. Thanks for the time.
0: If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts.